Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. <sighs> Toxicology, astro-seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid, planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, biological art and Google Cardboard. But first up... Here's the news. Beware the robots. Over a thousand scientists, some of them experts in artificial intelligence and robotics, and some of them from other fields, such as Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Noam Chomsky and Daniel Dennett, have signed an open letter warning of the dangers of military killing machines that make decisions without human intervention. Since it was published, over 15,000 more people have endorsed the letter. Here's the full text. An open letter from AI and robotics researchers. Autonomous weapons select and engage targets without human intervention. They might include, for example, armed quadcopters that can search for and eliminate people meeting certain predefined criteria, but do not include cruise missiles or remotely piloted drones for which humans make all the targeting decisions. Artificial intelligence, AI technology, has reached a point where the deployment of such systems is practically, if not legally, feasible within years, not decades, and the stakes are high. Autonomous weapons have been described as the third revolution in warfare, after gunpowder and nuclear arms. Many arguments have been made for and against autonomous weapons, for example, that replacing human soldiers by machines is good by reducing casualties for the owner, but bad by thereby lowering the threshold for going to battle. The key question for humanity today is whether to start a global AI arms race or to prevent it from starting. If any major military power pushes ahead with AI weapons development, a global arms race is virtually inevitable. And the end point of this technological trajectory is obvious. Autonomous weapons will become the Kalashnikovs of tomorrow. Unlike nuclear weapons, they require no costly or hard to obtain raw materials, so they will become ubiquitous and cheap for all significant military powers to mass-produce. It will only be a matter of time until they appear on the black market and in the hands of terrorists, dictators wishing to better control their populace, warlords wishing to perpetrate ethnic cleansing, etc. Autonomous weapons are ideal for tasks such as assassinations, destabilising nations, subduing populations and selectively killing a particular ethnic group. We therefore believe that a military AI arms race would not be beneficial for humanity. There are many ways in which AI can make battlefields safer for humans, especially civilians, without creating new tools for killing people. 
Just as most chemists and biologists have no interest in building chemical or biological weapons, most AI researchers have no interest in building AI weapons, and do not want others to tarnish their field by doing so, potentially creating a major public backlash against AI that curtails its future societal benefits. Indeed, chemists and biologists have broadly supported international agreements that have successfully prohibited chemical and biological weapons, just as most physicists supported the treaties banning space-based nuclear weapons and blinding laser weapons. In summary, we believe that AI has great potential to benefit humanity in many ways, and that the goal of the field should be to do so. Starting a military AI arms race is a bad idea, and should be prevented by a ban on offensive autonomous weapons beyond meaningful human control. End of letter. The Future of Life Institute plans to promote research that takes steps to make sure artificial intelligence stays beneficial to humanity. They have a $10 million seed fund from Elon Musk to spend on grants. Their priorities are optimising AI's economic impact, law and ethics research, privacy and security. Elon Musk has also invested in AI research companies DeepMind and Vicarious, so he can keep an eye on the industry and have a larger say. Beware the robots. Microsoft's Silicon Valley campus demonstrated autonomous K5 security robots for a day. The security robots have cameras, Wi-Fi, thermal imaging, and even biochemical and radioactivity sensors. For now, the robots decide where to move around on campus. And they decide what should be brought to the attention of human security guards. But they're not able to take other actions. Beware the robots. Robots need to beware of humans that may hurt them. Shopping mall robots in Japan are mostly attacked by children, who gang up and attack the poor robots. Researchers have developed strategies for the mall robots to measure the height of the people around them, so they can run away from little people and towards big people, where they're safer. Beware the robots. Smart guns that help you hit your target every time have been hacked by security experts. The computers of modern cars have also been hacked, and self-driving cars could as easily be hacked. The same criminals who blackmail you for access to your hard drive could try to blackmail you for a safe ride home. Of course, if my car had been hacked, I wouldn't trust a criminal to let me drive home after I'd paid them. Much better to call the car company to supply a safer ride home. Beware the robots. Samsung Techwin has robot border guards in South Korea that will shoot you if you don't give the right password. Your life could depend on how well the voice recognition works and whether you've got a cold. Russia has gone further with an automatically targeting combat robot armed with a Kalashnikov assault rifle and four grenade launchers. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak also signed the letter against autonomous weapons, but has since changed his mind. He now believes that when the robots take over, they will need to preserve the natural world, and will see puny humans as part of that natural world. He thinks we'll make great pets.
That was Porno for Pyros with Will Make Great Pets. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Recently, I visited a meeting of the Sydney Biofoundry, where JJ Hastings spoke about her art. Jaden J. Hastings is an artist, scientist and biohacker from the United States, presently travelling around the world doing different artist residencies. I began by asking her about her background in science, music and art. So I do have three master's degrees. The first master's degree is from Harvard in biology, a research degree in biology. The second is another research degree in bioinformatics from Oxford University. The third and most recent is a master of fine art from Central St. Martin in London. And for those who aren't familiar, what is bioinformatics? So that is a computational approach to biomedical data. So in this era where we have large-scale biomedical research projects, it requires sophisticated algorithms, ways to process all of that data within an efficient manner. And you're creating art inspired by your biological work. I am, yeah. I also like to incorporate biological processes and techniques, things that I've appropriated from the laboratory to incorporate in and produce my artwork itself. So you talked about exoplanets. So for Exoplanet, I created a holographic projection uh, with my own audio compositions for each movement. And within these holographic projections are a series of planets that I've imagined. There are planets that are made of anything from biological material to even synthetic materials. The idea is that it's a universe just as far as the imagination can lead you. Um, But it is also based on the scientific search for exoplanets with the Kepler project and some other scientific colleagues that are looking for planets beyond our own solar system. So what sort of imaginary planets were you creating in 3D? So, for example, I had one that was based off of the division of um, a single cell into the larger organism. So the fertilized egg dividing into the zygote. I had another that was based off of the beating cardiac cells in a petri dish. So you had a planet that was beating in space, this beautiful holographic mirage beating within a, a one meter square projection space. How do you generate a hologram of an imaginary planet? <laughs> the projection itself is actually rather easy. It's based off of a 19th century invention called Pepper's Illusion or Pepper's Ghost, but it's written in onto a 3D object. The challenge was really creating the digital file that would then be projected onto that object. That took some imagination, so some mental ability to imagine the the planet in 3D within the space and create the four different perspectives that would then be uh, projected onto the plinth. And you were talking about some art involving meteorites? Yeah, so this project that's fairly recent, I began it at my residency at Symbiotica in Perth that I've just completed. Starting with the archive at the Earth Museum at University of Western Australia, I began 3D scanning in great detail a collection of meteorites from their archive. Now those meteorites 
are the material or, or believed to be part of the material that has led to the production of organic material on Earth. So this is, for me, the sort of time capsule or, or a stand-in for our connection with the broader universe. So through this project, I'll be visiting different archives around the rest of the world and 3D scanning the meteorite collections in high resolution. And then I'll be glitching, playing with those meteorites, the volumetric data, and printing new synthetic meteorites to create a series of synthetic meteorites called Marking Time. And what medium are you printing in? I have not quite decided yet. I think I'll play around a bit with different materials, from the plastics to other resins, um, maybe metals, but I might even cast them after printing. So we'll see. It's still in development. On the matter of humanness. Yes. (laughs) That was a project that began a few years ago. They're reading a research paper by a group based out of Trinity College Dublin where they had identified open reading frames, ORFs, uh, genes that are unique to humans. So while genomically we're fairly similar to our high-rate cousins, proteomically speaking, the proteins that are encoded by those same sequences are unique to humans. So in our cousins, they're expressed maybe as RNA or shorter bits of RNA, whereas in humans they code fully functional proteins. Um, So the Matter of Humanist project, a long-term research project I've started that is both science and art in nature, will study these proteins in depth, other potential targets, other ORFs that are identified, and characterize these proteins as best as possible, an array of different scientific methodologies, but then also playing with that data as I go along to find new ways of representing scientific data that might inform our understanding of it. So this is both art and science at play. Yeah, the zoetrope and some visual heuristics. Yes, yeah, that is part of the Matter of Humanist project. So I was trying to find different ways of representing that data, the dynamism and energy of proteins at in action within the cell. So I took a single protein and nine different conformations of the three-dimensional structure of that protein and played it within a zoetrope to see if I could animate this protein within a two-dimensional space. So that's still an experiment. I don't know quite how successful it was, but nonetheless, a visual experiment. Another visual experiment was to create a heuristic, a way of fingerprinting the amino acid sequence of a protein so that you could readily understand the structure and characteristic of that protein. So I created a a color chart, a color space, based on the biochemical properties of each amino acid. And then... This created a beautiful pattern of stripes where you could readily see, based on the colors of those stripes, various uh, uh, features within the the two-dimensional sequence. So I'm hoping that maybe this can be beneficial to scientists to create a visual heuristic, a way of readily understanding uh, 2D amino acid structure. And for the listeners who haven't heard of them, a zoetrope is a very old way of showing animation by showing a lot of, well, one image after the other? Yeah, that's correct. It was, I believe, started by Maybridge in early 20th century. That may be incorrect, but <laughs> that's my re- recollection. So it's a series of photos taken in rapid succession, capturing time within rapid succession, so as to create the illusion of movement by showing them in rapid succession. It's sort of the, the precursor of cinema. And next you were talking about using your blood. <laughs> yes. So 
for those of you familiar with the work of the amazing artists at Semiotica, um, the Tisha Culture and Art Project as well that preceded it, there is a tradition of working with human material, biomaterial in artwork. And so during my residency at Sibiotica, I began using my blood as a material to create the artwork itself. One of them was a revision, new imagination, of the albumin printing process that was developed in around 1850. And it was the first process to mass produce photographic images worldwide. So, so can I just stop you there? Yeah. So you're saying back in the 1850s, yes. they were using blood to produce <laughs> photographs. So it was, blood was used, animal blood was used, as was then egg yolk, which proved far more easy to work with and I think perhaps more effective. It's a bit thicker in consistency than blood serum. So I think for practical purposes, egg whites, eggs became more popularly used than blood serum albumin. But I decided to use my own blood serum albumin to create photographic prints using the albumin printing process. So a revision of the original printing process. Yeah. And what did you print? What sort of (laughs) images did you create? So I started with actually taking my own biomedical data. I was concerned with the way in which we objectify or medicalize the body. So I, I took my own imagery of my biomedical therapies and tests and uh, printed them using the albumin process, the blood albumin process. I called it plasmotyping. <laughs> and so then I started uh, thinking of other things that I could print with. So I started landscapes of places of importance to myself, photographs of other astronomical materials. I even did one recent. I was inspired by the New Horizons images of Pluto and did a print of Pluto from the, the NASA image that came back. Yeah. So that led on to decellularization. Yes. Yes, so decellularization is most commonly used in regenerative medicine or tissue engineering to produce tissues, organs that are intended for transplantation back into the patient. So the process is, and I became interested in it because it is really a process of devitalizing, of removing the material that once made it an animated living tissue or organ. So I was interested in it as a process of devitalization. But then I also focused on sort of revealing that which is unseen. So I began staining the tissue that I managed to get a hold of, different animal tissues, staining them with histological stains. And it's a way of revealing what would otherwise be hidden from view. Um, Yeah. So still experimenting with decellularization as a process. And I think that's another long-term project. And that led on to Penetralia. That is the decellularization project. So that's the name I've given to it. Yes, yes. It's it, Yeah, the word just simply means um, revealing or, or that which is unseen, hidden from view, those most intimate, deepest parts of us. So I thought it was a perfect stand-in for using the bowel, <laughs> in my case, the small bowel of, of a pig, to then create artwork. So revealing that which would normally be unseen. So you decellularized it and then you altered it in different ways to make art. That's correct, yeah. So I stained it using different histological stains, led to beautifully coloured pieces, materials that I could then use to sculpt into into 3D artworks. And the last thing you told us about was photopoesis. (laughs) That's a term that I coined a few years ago to describe my photographic 
practice. Uh, Photopoiesis is meant to stand in for, for creating poetry with light. And so I tend to use a number of different historical or alternative processes, but then become experimental with them, as with, with the plasmotype, which I've reinvented, and playing with cyanotyping in different ways, wet plate collodion, anthotypes. These are all, pro- and cyanotypin and albumin have a particularly interesting link connection, as with daguerreotypin, wet plate collodion as well, with science. There's a parallel history between the development of certain photographic techniques and the history of science. So I find that interplay rather fascinating. So I try and incorporate that sometimes into my work as well. I guess guess generally speaking, I hope through my work to encourage engagement with biotechnology, to encourage more than just scientists to engage with biotechnology to pursue community engagement in science beyond just the cloistered walls of academia. Well, Jade and Jay Hastings, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Jaden Hastings talking about her art and science at Sydney's Biofoundry. I next visited Sydney's augmented reality and virtual reality meetup. Montgomery Gellhouse was demonstrating virtual reality video experiences. Montgomery works at Trigger in Sydney, developing augmented reality, virtual reality and 360-degree applications. I began by asking him how he connects Google Cardboard's cheap virtual reality goggles with a strange-looking camera. So what we do is we provide um, clients with 360 videos. We provide apps on the App Store iOS and Android that are free. We have a range of 360 videos that we promote and you can use cardboard, Google Cardboard, or variations of cardboard, including Samsung Galaxy VR, to view this content. So for listeners who don't know, what is Google Cardboard? Google Cardboard is a is a basically a virtual reality headset that enables you to place a mobile smartphone inside the headset, place it on your head, and view content or experiences within a virtual environment. It's basically taking you out of your real environment. And it's virtual reality for how much? Virtual reality is for free, this one here. The Google Cardboard. Google Cardboard itself costs anywhere between 10 to 30 based on the brand, but you have to look around to see what you can get. And so how do you shoot these sort of 360 movies? At the moment what we do is we have a custom GoPro system where we hack the GoPros, we take the lenses out, put our own custom lenses in, and then we have a four camera system which we then stitch after we film and then it becomes a spherical 360 movie, which you can then look around and see back, front, left and right, you can see everywhere, up, down as well. And how do people navigate menus within the movie? Navigating menus has always been a tricky thing. You have options such as you hover over buttons and they time out, so maybe one second you hover over and it selects it. There's other things such as in Gear VR, you have interactive touchpads, which you can use like a a phone screen. Um, one, like, one way that we like to do is we like to use the accelerometer in phones, which allows you to use things like a touch on the side of a phone that isn't actually interacting with any buttons or controls, but in itself can detect what you're trying to do, a tap, a double tap, a nod, a shake of the head, and you can kind of control it that way. You just have to kind of um, educate the user on how to use it. So what sort of 360 degree immersive films have you been making? Um, Some of the most popular content has been surfing footage, which we surfed Mark Matthews, the Australian surfer. We filmed him on the right, 
at WA and down in South Australia. You can see that content online as well from Garage Entertainment and also on the Trigger website. But that's some of the most exciting. We've also done some rally cars, also some traveling videos, biking videos. Very focused on sport, but there are applications such as we have done commercial in-store videos for marketing. But again, this, the sport footage is quite exciting. And where do you see the future of this going? There's a lot of applications for this in the future. I mean, virtual reality in itself, you, you imagine taking yourself out in terms of gaming or anything else, and you're taking yourself out of the world and enjoying it. But then you've also got aspects such as tourism, where say you want to know, where, where am I going? I want to know where I'm going. You look in the headset, you find you're in the desert or you're in the jungle, you know exactly where you're going to go, you know exactly what your hut's going to look like, you know everything you're going to go. It, it could be amazing. But you're going to find that people are People are going to use this to get more information, as all um, technology today. And that information is going to be visual, audio, and in the future, possibly other sensors such as touch with biosuits or anything like that. But it's, it's just going to be an amazing, amazing technology to explore. Do you see live broadcasts from these sort of 360 degree cameras so you could have telepresence? At the moment, we are currently looking at trying to do live broadcasting. We have some solutions. But again, that is definitely, definitely an option. You know, imagine concerts, uh, sporting events even. You have interviews or you have business applications where you're in a conference with 10 people all around the world and you're sitting at a round table and you can see everyone just by wearing a headset and they can see you. So there are lots of applications with that, yes. And where should people look for Trigger online? Um, you can look for Trigger online at trigger.com.au and that's T-R-I-G-G-A-R, A-R for Augmented Reality and you can find all our content on that website. We are on YouTube as well, Twitter and Facebook. So, Terrific. Montgomery, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Montgomery Gilhouse from Trigger, demonstrating 3D virtual reality experiences filmed on 360-degree cameras and viewed on Google Cardboard. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends to listen to Diffusion. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. I've been around a lot and talked with some of these research men, and they won't make predictions because they deal only in facts. But they're on their way to new ideas, new things that will astonish us when they are announced. For instance, one research man said recently, We have discovered how to manufacture rubber 
from coal, limestone, salt, and water. Out of air, water, and coal, we produce a fertilizer for which Americans formerly had to travel thousands of miles. In coal, we have found the colors of the rainbow and the perfumes of nature's sweetest flowers. Chemistry is responsible, too, for the gossamer-like threads of these new stockings. By a miracle of modern science, such commonplace things as coal, water, and air have been transformed into threads more elastic than silk, spun from filaments even finer than those of a spider's web, yet many times as strong. And the chemical age is just dawning. It's a bewildering future, all right.